So, <laughs> we are currently studying the Gospel of John here at Crossroads, and the Gospel of John is a biography about Jesus of Nazareth written by one of his closest friends, John the Apostle. And John the Apostle actually tells us why he wrote this biography. So there's four Gospels, four biographies of Jesus in the Scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all written for various different purposes. But John had a specific purpose, and he tells us what it is. At the very end of the book, John says, I have written, this is John 20, verse 31, John says, I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, John the Apostle wrote the Gospel of John for two reasons, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. This was John's purpose in writing his book, and I, I hope this is my purpose and our church's purpose in teaching it over the next several months, that we as a church, that you, that me, we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. And you know, there's quite a bit of confusion these days about who Jesus is. You've got a lot of people claiming that Jesus is this or claiming that Jesus is that. Just this week, we watched people storm the Capitol building of our nation, some of which were holding a Jesus saves flag as they did it. Who is that Jesus? And is that the life that Jesus is calling us to? I'm not convinced it is. But the Gospel of John helps us cut through the confusion of what everyone is trying to tell us what Jesus is like. And John tells us from the lips of someone who was his closest friend who walked with him, John tells us who Jesus really is and what he's really like and the life that he really offers. And our text this morning is John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34. And we're picking up where we left off last week with a guy named John the Baptist. And not John the Apostle. There's John the Apostle, the guy who wrote the book, and then there's John the Baptist. That's not his denomination. That's what he did. He baptized people. So, uh, you know, the Presbyterians or the Methodists in the room, you don't feel excluded by John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist was a prophet, and he lived in the desert. He was a little bit of a wild man, had a big beard. He ate bugs. You know, he, he was kind of a crazy guy. He's kind of like if you mixed Bear Grylls and ZZ Top, you would have John the Baptist. Uh, and he was, he was out in the desert. He was developing quite a following as a teacher of the Scriptures and a, a prophet. And all these people were gathering around, and they were listening to John. They were listening to his teachings, and they were, they were wanting to follow what he was teaching them to do. And uh, people were listening to what he had to say. And then Jesus shows up out in the desert, and John quickly directed the attention off of himself. He says, you are not following me. Do not follow me. Do not listen to what I am saying, but listen to him. And he points to Jesus. He said, he's the one whom the attention should be directed to. And this is what he says in verse, this is what it says in verse 29. It says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, kids, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he 
of whom I have said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So this passage tells us a couple of things that are of critical importance. One, if you just simply want to understand Christianity what we believe, what we're about, but also if you want to understand uh, what the gospel of John is going to be teaching over the next 20 chapters. You need to understand this passage if we want to understand the rest of the gospel. So what does this passage tell us about Jesus? The first thing it tells us is that Jesus removes our greatest problem. Okay? Jesus removes our greatest problem. Verse 29, it says, The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. Let's focus on that phrase for a moment. And over the years, I've read this verse hundreds of times. I've quoted it, and only recently have I begun to notice an important detail that I managed to miss all these years. And that is that John the Baptist does not say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, he takes away the sin of the world. So he's, it's singular, not plural. And what he's saying is he's saying that what Jesus is taking away is something comprehensive and whole. And we often think of sin as individual actions that we do, right? So we commit sins, we lie to our mom, we drink too much, we get in fights, and a whole host of other things we're not supposed to do. Sin, that we think of the times we disobey God, we break His law by our action, by our inaction, by our attitude, or by our intent. These are sins, these are individual sins. But John here says that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. He's speaking of something more comprehensive. You see, sin in the traditional understanding is a bigger deal than simply wrong things we do or don't do. See, sin explains all of the brokenness of the world, and John explained much of this very well just a moment ago. You see, our sins, the things we do that we wish we didn't do, the things we do that dishonor God, those are a symptom of a greater disease called sin. You see, in the beginning chapters of the Bible, we read about the fall. John explained this to us just a moment ago. Humans disobey God and sin enters the world and God's perfect creation is now in this moment infected with brokenness. And our hearts are now bent toward disobedience to God rather than obedience. But sin is even greater than simply our hearts and our wills. I want to give you four ways we understand the scope and the comprehensive nature of sin. First thing, and, the, and this is the ways we experience the curse of sin. The first thing is that we face the consequences of our own sin, of our own sins. We just talked about this. This is our wrongful actions, our inaction. Not only that, but our bad attitudes and our evil intent. 
See, along with our sins in this regard, there is a principle that often holds true, and that is you reap what you sow. See, there are consequences to our sin, right? Francis Spufford humorously yet accurately defined sin as the human propensity to mess things up. And how many of you have made a mess of your life because of your sin? I know that I have on many occasions. You see, our sins break relationships. It destroys trust. It leads to addictions, harmful behavior patterns. It gets us in situations we wish we had never gotten ourselves into. It leads us to the back of a cop car sometimes. Sin makes us feel guilty. It makes us feel ashamed. And our sins have lasting consequences on our lives. And the Bible teaches that the greatest consequences, the greatest consequence of our sin is that it separates us from God. It separates us from a holy God because God created you and He created me to have a relationship with Him, to know Him, to love Him, to obey Him. And when we sin, when we disobey Him, we cause a fracture in our relationship with God and we are separated from Him. This is the greatest, most significant consequence of sin, that we're separated from God. But another consequence of sin, another effect of sin, is that the world around us is broken. You see, sin has not just caused us to do bad things, it has caused the entire world around us to be broken. We see in the beginning pages of the Bible that God created a world that is perfectly good. Things were as God intended. They were as they should be, but because of our disobedience, It not only caused our hearts to change, but it changed the fabric of creation. And now God's creation is under a curse. You see, God never created our world to be a place where we get cancer. God never created the world to be a place where viruses kill thousands upon thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people in our nation. God did not create a world where a virus shuts down the global economy. God did not create a world to be a place where natural disasters can wipe out entire communities and for children to be born with disabilities. This was not God's original design for creation. But because of sin, brokenness now enters into the world and everything is affected by the curse of sin. And it affects us all in various ways. The third thing about sin is that there are powers and principalities, meaning there is pure evil. There are demonic forces that exist both in the unseen and the seen world. And I know that this makes Americans scoff. We think, oh gosh, he's talking about demonic stuff. What? We're so much more sophisticated than that. We're so smart for that. Think what you want, but the Bible teaches that there are powers and principalities. There are evil forces that affect our lives and our world and the structures and the systems in which we live. There are powers and principalities. Another thing about the comprehensive nature of sin is that we are affected by the sins of others. Often much of the suffering and much of the, 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 the hurt in our lives has nothing to do with our own sin. Many of you in this room have suffered greatly in ways that have nothing to do with the consequences of your own sin. But it has to do with the sin that others have committed against you. 
If you've experienced abuse in any form, whether that's physical or emotional or spiritual, you know that someone else's sin can wreak havoc on your life. If you've ever experienced racism or misogyny or an abusive work culture, then you are aware that sometimes the greatest suffering in our lives is the result of someone else's sin. You see, sin is a much greater problem than just the things we do wrong. It's the all-encompassing brokenness of the world that we live in. You see, the greatest problem in our lives, in our country, and in our world is sin, period. But when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb who takes it all away. And how does he take it all away? He's the Lamb of God. And now it's difficult for us, we hear that, we go, Lamb of God, what, like what does that mean? It's difficult for our ears to understand the power of this announcement. But to John the Baptist's audience, and to those reading John the Apostle's gospel, this statement would have brought a flood of meaning into their minds. This was a Jewish audience that was incredibly, intimately familiar with the Bible, the Old Testament. And they knew that in Leviticus and Numbers, an innocent lamb was sacrificed to atone for sin in the community. They knew the story of Exodus and the Passover lamb when the families of God were covered their doorposts with the blood of an innocent lamb. And when death came over the community, those who were covered by the blood of an innocent lamb, death passed over them and they were spared and they were given life and freedom. The people listening to John announced that Jesus was the Lamb of God. They knew of the prophet Isaiah who spoke of a lamb, an innocent lamb being led to the slaughter. But most importantly, they knew of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 when Abraham assured his son Isaac that God would provide a lamb for the burnt offering. You see, in the Jewish mind, the lamb was associated with a substitutionary sacrifice. An innocent lamb sheds blood for guilty people, and when this happens, their guilt is removed. You know, animal sacrifice is still common in many parts of the world. It's not something that you, you, you hope to hear much of in our country, but it is common in other parts of the world when there is a calamity in some places, it's thought that the calamity is caused by the powers of evil. Something has upset the powers of evil. And so atonement must be made. Something has to pay for whatever evil has been committed. And so many cultures, they will take an animal and they will sacrifice it to whatever God that they believe in. And we can judge this and we can call this primitive, but I think in our culture, we have the same mindset, even though we don't do the exact same thing. We, we demand atonement when we've been wronged. We do the same thing. When something goes wrong in our culture, we demand that someone pays the price for our anger. I mean, just think about COVID. As COVID has raged through our country, and it had all the politics that have been attached to it, and everybody's been upset that there's lockdowns, and everybody's been upset that there's virus going around, and there's all this sort of stuff, and that our lives have been affected in all these ways, and we're in pain, we're frustrated, we're sad, we're, I mean, confused, we're afraid, all these things, and we are looking for somebody to blame. 
and for somebody to feel the wrath of our anger. And depending on who you are, that anger has been directed at Dr. Fauci. It's been directed at Donald Trump. It's been directed at Bill de Blasio. It's been directed at Governor Cuomo. It's been directed at another country. It's been directed at whomever and whatever. But we, when we are angry and when we are in a rage, we want somebody to feel our fury. Think about, we want, we want, we, we, we want someone to pay for our frustration. We're outraged when things are the way, aren't the way they're supposed to be. And when there is an injustice, we want somebody to pay. That is wired within us. And sin is no different. It rightfully enrages a holy God. He created this world to reflect His glory, but we have disobeyed Him. We have rebelled against Him, and He is righteously angry. And his anger, it's got to be directed somewhere. But instead of directing his wrath towards sin on sinners, all throughout the Old Testament, God makes provisions for an innocent lamb sacrifice to take away the sins of the community. But in a staggering act of grace and mercy, in the life of Jesus, God becomes a man. And he lives the perfect life, completely innocent, completely good, and yet on the cross, the sin of the world is placed on his shoulders. And God pours out his own wrath and his own anger towards sin onto his son and onto himself. He dies in the place of sinners so that sinners can be forgiven and the curse can be lifted. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's good news. We can now stand before God without fear. Our sins have been forgiven and they have been washed clean. We can now, uh, we can, instead of destroying His creation, God is now renewing His creation. And we look forward to the day in the new heavens and the new earth when God restores all things and all that's broken in this world will be fixed. And to quote Tolkien, everything sad will become untrue. On the cross, Satan disarmed demonic powers, and they have been defeated. And Jesus now offers us eternal life in his resurrection, which means that all of the sin that has been committed against us, all the pain that we have felt at the hands of abusers and oppressors will one day be lifted, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. In the final book of the Bible, we hear these words in Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. Behold the Lamb of God, Christ, who takes away the sin of the world. You see, our greatest problem, sin, has been removed by Jesus. And then look at the rest of the passage in verse 30. It says, John the Baptist says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So Jesus takes away, he removes our greatest threat, 
And Jesus offers his greatest resource. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You see, John the Baptist had built a ministry out in the desert, and one of the key features of his ministry is in his title. He baptized. And he baptized people with water as a sign of repentance, a sign of them repenting of their sin and preparing their hearts and their lives for the Messiah who was to come. And well, then Jesus comes to John, and this is in the other Gospels, in Matthew and Mark particularly, well, Jesus comes along, and he comes out into the desert, and he says to John, John, will you baptize me? And John hesitates to baptize Jesus because Jesus is the Messiah, and he has no sin to repent of. But Jesus insists that he must be baptized to fulfill the will of God so that Jesus will be revealed to the people of Israel. And John says here what that means. Something strange happened the moment that Jesus was baptized. Something that revealed who Jesus was. John says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now again, the significance of these words being said, we don't catch. But the Jewish audience would have caught this immediately, the significance of these words immediately. All throughout the Old Testament, a dove is seen as a sign, a harbinger, if you will, that a new day has dawned and a new history is being written. In Genesis 8, after the flood was over, it was a dove that marked this new beginning for Noah and his family. And here at Jesus' baptism, a dove, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, meaning that the dawn of a new history has arrived. A new day has come, and something new is happening. The Messiah is here, and he is taking away the sin of the world. But not only did the Spirit descend like a dove, but it remained on Jesus. It remained on him. And often in the Old Testament, you have instances of the Spirit of God descending on people, but the Spirit never stayed or remained on someone. Think of King Saul. The Spirit of the Lord departed from him. Think of, or consider King David, who prayed, God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. The Spirit falls and remains on Jesus. What's happening here? John the Baptist explains. He says, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the Messiah who removes sin from the world and defeats our greatest enemy, does something else as well, and that is that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Samuel Negewa, a Kenyan theologian and professor, says, besides being the Lamb, Jesus is also the Son of God whose ministry is blessed by the Holy Spirit. He gives that spirit to others whom he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This baptism may include many blessings, but the most basic is that the Holy Spirit puts his stamp on us, giving us the assurance that we belong to God because Jesus has removed the sin in our lives. You know, many sermons, there's a lot of different sermons that could be preached here on what is meant by the baptism of the Spirit. But John is trying to show us that the Holy Spirit is upon Jesus And Jesus has the authority to send out the Spirit upon those who believe in Him and follow Him. See, the Spirit does many things in our lives. The Spirit gives us gifts through which we can That the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, the primary role of the Spirit... 
I believe, is to be God's presence and power with us and to point us to Jesus. You see, John the, the Apostle, what was his purpose in writing the Gospel of John? That we would believe and that we would have life in the name of Jesus. John the Baptist, what was his purpose? Was it to draw attention to himself? No, it was to point to Christ, the Lamb of God. And what is the Holy Spirit's purpose? Is it to draw attention to himself? No. The Holy Spirit's purpose is much like John the Apostle and John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to turn the attention away from himself and onto Christ, who is the Lamb of God. So when you're indwelled with the Spirit, the greatest gift that the Spirit does is the Spirit reminds you and calls to remembrance in your heart who Jesus is and what He has done for you. Which means that in those moments of your doubt, in those difficult moments, uh, in those moments where you feel guilt and shame for your sin, in those moments where you are frustrated with the sin of the world, in those moments where you are wounded from the sin of someone else, it is the Holy Spirit in your life who, who pleads with you to remember the gospel of Jesus, that he is the Lamb of God who has taken away and is taking away the sin of the world. You can be forgiven of that sin that you feel so guilty and ashamed of. The Spirit is there to remind you of that. You can, you, you can know that even as this world around us seems like it is spinning into chaos, that God is making all things new on the day that He returns. You can know that. The Spirit reminds you that even when life is crazy, you can have faith that one day all things will be restored. In those moments where you feel beaten down and abused and wounded and hurt from the sins of other people, the Spirit is there to remind you that Jesus is making a way for you to see Him face to face in eternity. And on that day, the abuse that you have experienced, it will be wiped away by the tender embrace of Jesus. The Spirit is there to remind you of who Jesus is, what He has done, and what He continues to accomplish in your life. Are you weak today? Do you have doubts do you have frustrations? Are you angry? Are you bitter? Perhaps you need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life that can awaken your heart to see who Jesus is and remember who He is. The Spirit will give you the power to defeat sin. He will give you the boldness to proclaim the name of Christ. And He will give you the courage to resist temptation. This is the greatest resource Jesus could ever give us, the Spirit of God. Jesus has removed our greatest enemy, sin. Death, where is your sting? Sin, where is your power? Jesus has lifted it. He has taken, he has lifted your shame. He has removed your guilt. You now stand before God as a saint because Jesus has forgiven you of your sin. Jesus has removed our greatest threat, our greatest enemy. But not only that, he has given us his greatest resource. The Holy Spirit of God indwells within you if you are a follower of Jesus. And John is going to write in the rest of his gospel proving this point. He is going to show us the God of the Bible who put on flesh, came to earth in Christ, and he is removing our sins, and he is giving us the power of the Spirit. Listen, I know like many of you, or maybe you're like me, um, but I went to bed on December 31st with this naive sense that 2020, that the worst was over, you know? 
And that was the big joke, wasn't it? It was, oh, 2020 is over. Thank God. You know, we're going to wake up tomorrow. It's going to be a new year and all the nightmare is going to be over. But boy, did we learn very quickly that the calendar cannot take away the sin of the world, can it? The calendar cannot take away the sin of the world. It cannot take away the sin that's threatening our country and our republic right now. It cannot take away the guilt and the shame that you feel over the things you've done or said or haven't done or the intentions of your heart. The calendar can't change the pain that you feel from the wounds you experienced in 2020. The calendar cannot take away the sin of the world. Only Jesus can do that. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's maybe time for many of us to stop thinking we can ride out the, the, the pain of 2020. Many of us have just kind of sat, sat back and been passive thinking maybe all this, this awful stuff is going to end. Maybe it's time for us to stop waiting for the calendar to change something, but rather we can put our hope and our affections and our eyes onto Jesus who takes away the sin of the world, the sin that is so easily entangling and frustrating and disheartening us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me pray for you, Crossroads. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for sending Christ we thank you that not only was Christ innocent and spotless, but that he took our sin, my sin, upon his shoulders. He was beaten, he was ridiculed, he was mocked, he was nailed to a wooden, rugged cross. So that we could be free. Like an innocent lamb, he was led to the slaughter so that the community could be free of our sins. And so God, we thank you for the gospel that Jesus in his mercy gave himself up for us. And God, we celebrate that and we thank you for that. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Now, if you're with us in the room this morning, you picked up a little communion cup on your way in. If you're watching us on, uh, online, maybe you've got uh, in your fridge or in your pantry, you've got some bread and some juice. But we always take a moment every week to take communion. Jesus told us to. He said that whenever you take this, do this in remembrance of me. He said, my blood, this is the covenant, this is my blood, the, the, the juice, this is my blood that has been shed for you. The bread, this is my body that has been broken for you. You see what we do every week when we take communion, we are beholding the Lamb of God. We're doing what John asked us to do. When we take the bread and we take the cup, we are beholding the Lamb of God who was slain for us. His body was broken and his blood was shed so that death and sin could pass over us. And if you hear, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know what the gospel of Jesus is. Remember I said that John baptized people a baptism of repentance and Jesus baptized with the spirit and with forgiveness. The scriptures say that those who will repent of their sin, who will say that I can't save myself, I don't have the means within me to save myself. Those who will repent and will confess their sin to Christ. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And in that moment, you'll be given the gift of his spirit and you'll be given eternal life and you'll be given Christ himself. 
And so if today, if you need to be born again, then the scriptures call you to behold Jesus. But those of you who've been following Jesus perhaps for a long time, if you're tired, if you're weary, the antidote for weariness and the antidote for exhaustion and the antidote for frustration is the same thing. It's looking, it's beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we're gonna sing one last song. And as we sing it, you take the bread and the cup, the body that was broken for you and the blood that was shed and do that in remembrance of him. Thank you, Crossroads.